Well, hello. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I saw some of you not too long ago. I think if we had like a frequent flyer card, a lot of us would be getting a lot of punches, maybe even a free church donut if there was such a thing. Um, I don't know. I'm awkward. My name's Justin. Great to have you. I'm one of the pastors here. Merry Christmas. Hopefully you had a delightful, restful, peaceful day. You didn't drink too much eggnog or shoot your eye out with something that you asked Santa for. Uh, delighted to be with you for the fourth installment of a series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a creed. It's a statement of beliefs. It's a summary of these ideas that are foundational, that make Christianity Christianity. Gives us a sense of what our doctrine should be or whatever. And so uh, we're going to just follow suit in what we have done um, each week. We're going to stand together and we are going to recite this together. I will, I will kind of lead us. It's on the side screens. This is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to focus on the death of Christ. Uh, the, 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 the title of this sermon is The Death That Brought Life. I know we have Riv Kids Closed. I know there might be some little ears uh, in this room, but we're going to talk about some of those elements that go into that. So this is kind of one of those, I don't know that I'm really apologizing right now, or I'm just kind of, this is a shot over the bow, but scripture says this, the creed says this, so we say some hard things. So you have <laughs> been warned, but we're going to think a little bit about the death of Christ how it brought us life. Sometimes this is something we, we take for granted. But here's the conundrum. Here's the problem. The Bible, uh, and I would say our, our experience intuitively, tells us that we are very flawed. And it's almost like on one side you have us, we are over here, we are sinful, and we have a good and holy God, and he is way over here, and the, the death of Jesus has something to do with reconciling that. So here's the three lines that we're going to lean into today. I think these give us an answer to how this all can be made sense of. The lines say this about Jesus. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Now, the, the death of Christ is very well documented. That's not news to anybody. We know that it happened, but things get a little bit confusing when we start to talk about why did that happen, and then what did it accomplish? What were the implications of it? That is a different matter altogether. Often we kind of miss the importance here. We overlook, underestimate the significance of the death of Christ. Now, the cross is a very big deal in Christianity. Very big deal. But when you think about it, it's an odd thing. 
We see the cross on bumper stickers. Uh, we see it on signage. I saw some of you this morning. You've, you've got some, maybe that was a new uh, piece of jewelry you've got. We see the cross all over the place. This, this iconography is common, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be a little bit strange because this was the Roman mode of execution for centuries. The cross was not a symbol of religiosity in any way, shape, or form. It was just a picture of the death penalty, okay? So what if your next birthday rolls around, you get a new gold chain, and you get an electric chair that goes right around it? That would be the proxy. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I'm just saying this is what it would be. Now, I think this is going to take us to a place that's beautiful and powerful, but we have to admit this is a bit jarring. It should be. This was capital punishment. And in Rome, this capital punishment was designed to be public, designed to be cruel, designed to be unusual, where the victim would be tied to a wooden beam or would be pierced and stuck to that beam. And this is where uh, there's no easy way to go around this. But um, even when pierced, uh, the victim would not bleed to death. This was supposed to be slow. That the victim wouldn't die until exhaustion would happen. And then asphyxiation would happen where, where you cannot breathe. You would, you would essentially drown and not be able to breathe when you couldn't support yourself anymore. So the cross was not just the death penalty, but it was shame, and it was a picture of capital punishment. It was, it was a picture of the wrath of Rome. And like I said, this has been going on for many, many years. Um, there are examples of this when they would conquer an army or conquer an area and people were re rebellious. This is what happened. Um, some of us might have heard of Spartacus. There was a revolt and all these slaves and gladiators that revolted. And for two years, they were more or less successful in resisting Rome. 71 BC or BCE, depending on uh, however you want to keep track of that. Anyways, two years when they were finally captured and brought down on the Appian Way, the Romans crucified 6,000 of these men to publicly shame them, to say these people are cursed. So what had been going on for Rome for hundreds of years is opposition to the reign and the rule of Rome was being punished in an ugly, abrasive kind of way. What I'm getting at isn't that we shouldn't have cross jewelry, that you don't need to take that off, okay? Keep rocking it, keep doing your thing. But what I'm saying is we should always be aware of what this symbolizes, that it shouldn't be sterile, that this shouldn't be something that's just casual. Because the Bible says that the cross is what Jesus had. It was meant for him. It was a horrible thing that actually happened to him, and we believe that. Now, a lot of us, we think, why? Like, why did that happen? And, and I'm going to take the scenic route a bit this morning. We'll, we'll get into those statements of the Apostles' Creed. But we, we need a bit of a scenic route for this to make any sense, especially to us modern people. We have a very different mindset uh, than the, the, the mind of the Bible. But I, I've had questions with people, and I've even wondered to myself, like, why did Jesus have to die? Like that. Like, unnaturally. Like, couldn't he have just been a great savior, leader, lived to be very, very old, retired, you know, golf a little bit, and then pass away at a ripe old age? Why did it have to be like this? Well, to understand this, we need to grasp, get a sense of the holiness of God. How a good God hates sin, he is just, he has wrath. 
Okay, and so when we say God is holy, we mean a few different things contained in this idea, this definition. First of all, we mean that God is incomparable. That his majesty, who he is, he, he is blameless, he is faultless, he has unblemished moral purity. He is so clean. But holiness also carries with the idea that there's, there's a separation, right? There's a separation. That to be set apart, to be distinct, that's what holy is. That God is other. He is clean, we are dirty. He is perfect, we are flawed. He is pure, we, we are corrupt. That's why we have this, this gap. And the bad news for you and I is that our moral standard is not each other. Like, my best version of me is not my moral standard. Me being better than my neighbor or thinking I'm better than my neighbor is not my standard. My standard is this perfect, holy God. To be called ungodly is to be what we are. We're supposed to be God-like. That's our standard. So we have an issue. Isaiah in the Old Testament gets this glimpse of God's holiness. He, he, he sees the temple. And I'll just set up the scene for you. He, he sees and hears these angelic beings. And these angelic beings are, are not even able to face the radiance, the glory of God. So they put wings over their faces. And they can't help but call out, shouting, declaring this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Whenever you see repetition, it's like an exclamation point. It's, it's emphatic. Our, our, our English stops short of capturing this three times over. They are crying out that he is holy. Isaiah says when they shouted, when their voices shouted, these great mighty beings who are terrified of God, by the way, the foundations of the doorways shook and at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. This is an aesthetic experience. <laughs> this is riveting. And in light of all of that, Isaiah sees himself in contrast. He says, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of the armies. God is so other, holy, set apart in his perfection and his transcendence that even, even my words trying to, 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 to describe this probably are flirting with blasphemy. I just can't do enough. I can't say enough about that. And we, in contrast, we probably can't say enough about that, that we are very different. We're wholly other. Gotquestions.org, uh, um, which is a good place if you got questions. Got some nachos to go with that cheese this morning. Anyways, God is holy. This is what they say. God is holy. And in him, there is not even the faintest trace of evil. He is impeccably pure, holy without fault, uncompromisingly just. God cannot, die, cannot lie. He cannot make wrong decisions. He is blameless, timeless, and sinless. By contrast, we are flawed beings tainted by sin. By all rights, a holy and righteous God must judge sinners, and the wages of sin is death. That's Romans for you. So the question is, how does a holy God interact with sin? How does 
an exterminator deal with termites? How does a surgeon interact with a tumor? How does bleach interact with germs? You're picking up what we're putting down here, okay? The optimism right now shouldn't be very high, okay? A holy and just God eradicates and does away with sin. He can't see wrong and look away. All of us, we know this. In this room alone, if we were to discuss the traumas that have happened to us, the betrayals, the harm, whether it's theft or fraud or assault, we all know you can't just look at that and be like, eh, push that under a rug, everything will be fine. We know that with our sense of justice, how much more so this holy God. So in our human dealings, we know that reconciliation would take a lot. An apology, a debt to be repaid, something would have to be done and it has to be profound. God's requirement is blood, is death. Bible says both in the Old and the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see this early on. Bible nerds, okay, we're going to be pushing a lot of buttons on the dashboard, and hopefully they're, they're registering with you. But we see this from the beginning. Adam and Eve sin. They're naked. Now they're ashamed. To cover that shame, to cover over what happens, an innocent animal has its blood shed. This is the ark that continues all throughout Scripture. Shed is, blood is always shed. What I'm getting at here is what do you do with this chasm? What do you do with this gap between God and us? How could it be closed? Well, I'll leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Give us a visual at the end. But let's go back to the creed. Actually, probably get into the creed. It says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is very unique. When I was nerding out on this, someone pointed out that the only person besides Jesus... And Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus, that gets named in the Apostles' Creed or any of the creeds is Pontius Pilate. Not, not Moses, not Paul, not Abraham, not any of the other men and women of old, but Pontius Pilate. Who's Pontius Pilate? Well, he's the governor, a Roman governor put in charge of the province of Judea roughly from 26 or 27 to uh, 36 or 37, about a decade there, serving under the emperor Tiberius. And uh, there's so much we could say here. I, I nerded some, we'll nerd a little bit more about the afterlife in a, in a moment. I'll get a little dark on that one. But anyways, um, I think what's going on here is the writers of the scripture, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that this faith that we have is historical. A real savior, real person, not a legend, lived in a real place, real time, entered real history, real death, real resurrection, real ministry. And this is not just mythology. It's not just that he died and then like, it was like his message lived on. And it was, it was like, no, he, he died, and he did live on, and we want to name the person that was ruling in this area. So anyways, Pilate is overseeing the, the, the Roman presence in Judea. His job is to keep Israel underneath the Roman boot. Rome owned a lot of territory. They spread out, and they wanted to occupy and have a military presence all over the place. And so we, we will pick up in John 19 middle of the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate when they meet. But at this point, 
Jesus and Pilate had already been in conversation. Jesus had already been betrayed in the garden, been brought before the, the religious rulers, had a sham trial. A lot of things had happened. Pilate and Jesus had discussed uh, his kingship. Jesus is like, my kingship, my, my, my kingdom's not here. And if, if you read and you, and you lean into Pilate, what Pilate was trying to figure out, is this guy a threat to insurrection? Is this guy going to lead a charge? Oh, is he the king of the Jews and the Jews are going to rise up against us? Pilate pretty much vetted him and realized, I mean, clearly he didn't believe, but he's like, this guy's not a threat. But he knew that Jesus was on the outs with the religious leaders. Jesus was very clear. I've taught publicly. I've said this before. So Pilate is under a lot of pressure to do something with Jesus. And so this is what it says about how he historically suffered under Pilate. John 19, 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. A word on that in a moment. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe. This is mockery. Purple was the royal color of Rome. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, so there was a, the, a gathered crowd of religious opponent, opponents. So Pilate is, is playing a social and political theater here. He's got forces weighing in on him. He's trying to answer back to this crowd. He goes out to them and he says, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. He found no grounds, but he just had him tortured to appease this crowd. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, here is the man. Real suffering, a real governor, a real savior, real pain. Here's Jesus facing this scene. Real emotional trauma, real social scorn, and Pilate had him flogged. Now, I, I could lean in harder on this one, but flogging was a whipping. Roman whips typically had many different leather bands that popped out, pieces of bone, pieces of metal attached. You can imagine what that would do to the body. This already happened. Now, Pilate was doing this to try to give a really bad punishment with Jesus to appease the crowd so that they would go away, so that they would leave him alone. So it says, after this, after the flogging, after the punishment... Pilate showed Jesus the crowd full of his accusers, verses 6 and 7. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, that's Jesus, they shouted, crucify, crucify. This is a mob. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And just uh, an oh, by the way, don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Probably the only thing he and his accusers would, would agree on is that Jesus claimed to be God, to be the son of God. He received praise. It's reiterated. He, he takes all these spiritual names, the son of man, the I am. There's, there's all of these things ascribed to him. He receives it. They knew what they were doing. It was this claim to divinity. This was the premise. This was the charge that led him to his death. And according to the law and to the tradition, if you speak this blasphemy, you could be stoned, you could be killed. 
And what the Jews needed, because they weren't ruling their own place, they needed Rome to carry out that dirty work. They needed to use Rome as a tool to execute them because they didn't have that kind of authority. And here's why this is a weighty, intense scene. This is during Passover. During Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell. Jews and proselytes, worshipers would come from around the known world, and they would come into town. It would be packed. And if you're a Roman in charge of keeping these people suppressed, and all of a sudden there's hundreds of thousands of people. If there was ever a time to worry about a riot that you cannot control, Passover is the time. Pilate was not stupid, so he knew if there's someone who claimed to be king, wanted to take over, he could be in trouble at this time. So as a fearful politician, not wanting to anger this crowd, he, 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 he knew about his own self-interest, right? He, he wanted to not only keep his job, but keep his head. Both would have been on the line if something were to go wrong. So long story made short, even though he found no grounds for punishment, he didn't make the hard call. He didn't do what was right. He, charged, uh, he, he chose to do what was easy, and he caves into this social and political pressure, sentences Jesus to death. More on that in a moment. The creed continues. Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. So we will, we will get to that, uh, the end of John, in, in a moment. But here's just a few implications as we're going here. Paul says this about the death of Christ. His death, in his death, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. So that's an economic illustration. That was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So spiritually, and we could say so much here, he disarms the powers and the authorities. There's cosmic and spiritual implications here. Commentaries go on and on. It's fascinating. Um, but namely, I'll just give you the spark notes. He is saying that, that Jesus, when he was crucified, it kind of pulled the rug out from underneath the devil and evil fallen empires, the cosmos, the spirits, that, that they were actually shamed. That's what he's doing. Jesus was triumphing. They didn't even see it coming. Paul is also saying for us that via the cross, Jesus won the victory we couldn't win. He paid the debt we could never pay. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. Often around the time of Easter, we, we hear a reading from Isaiah 53. 700 years before Jesus, there's a prophecy about what this Messiah that would come in the future would do. Uh, this is what it says about Jesus. He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But in turn, we regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. So we rebel. We deserve punishment. We are broken people. But he took away that death penalty. And not only the death penalty... He took away the curse, Bible nerds. Back to Genesis 3 again. This is what Paul says. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This harkens back to Genesis. 
He is revoking the curse. He is taking it back. Jesus is being cursed so that his people won't have to be cursed. So here's the summary of this. There's no debt. There's no punishment. No curse left when Jesus was crucified. We'll take a little, a little time here with, now with the last statement of the creed. He descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. That's a very unique way of putting that. There's different iterations of this, by the way. Now, there's really no debate that Jesus died. I mean, even the pants on fire crazy people are, are with us with that one, right? Scriptures say as much. History says as much. Jesus died. Here's a question. And if you're new to the faith or you haven't thought much about this, this, this might mess with you a bit. What happened between when Jesus died and when Jesus rose again? To what effect was their spiritual activity? What was happening? This baffles a lot of people. Uh, maybe you've never thought about this. Maybe this seems strange. It probably should. That's okay. But there's this line in 1 first, first Peter 3 that, that says that when he was dead, he went and he made a proclamation uh, to the imprisoned spirits. So Jesus was up to something. This has been a, a place of debate in church history. And the Bible doesn't say tons of it, uh, about it, excuse me, but some iterations of the, of the Apostles' Creed will literally say that Jesus went to hell. And it, it you know, kind of has a nice ring to it, like Jesus went to hell for you. Um, that's not my view, and I want to unpack why, and, and if you come from, and I know there's a lot of different traditions in this room, and if, if you're feeling wonky right now, I want to push you back to Pastor Noel's bucket analogy, buckets of belief a while back. I don't think that this bucket, this is like a, not the small bucket whether or not you're saved kind of thing. Like, we can debate, we can argue, we can send emails. If you've got a tear-off, you can write that down. I'm sure there'll be other complaints you have for me. So just throw this in there. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it going. But anyways, um, Christians and those who identify with Christ have believed di different things, but I want to tell you why I think the, the scripture uh, does not teach that he, he went to hell, that rather it was a message of, of victory for its inhabitants, crude illustration. Okay, it'd be one thing for me to go to the smoking section, right? It'd be another thing for me to go into the office near the smoking section, get on the intercom, and have a message that goes to the smoking section, Okay. I think when Jesus was dead, that is more or less what he was doing. So, visual learners, nerds, we have a chart for you, okay? Now, I want to talk about the place of the dead. When someone dies, what happens? This is a weighty thing, but let's illustrate it because I think this captures the essence of what Scripture teaches. The Bible will use two words predominantly to talk about what happens when people die. They, they go to a place. They go to one place, the place of the dead. If we're speaking Hebrew, we call it Sheol. If we're speaking Greek, we call it Hades. Okay? Two words for the same thing, um, just, uh, just, just different language. That's it. Okay? So if I were to say, meet me at the library, or meet me at the biblioteca, la biblioteca, right? I'll meet you at 745. I'll meet you at quarter to eight. Same thing. Okay? So what happens? Body dies. Then um, we, we are these disembodied spirits. If you need an illustration, think Casper the Friendly Ghost. If you need to, that's cartoony. Um, anyways, we are disembodied spirits. And the scripture seems to say that there's this great gulf, this, this chasm, this, this gap. You go to one place, the place of the dead, but it's divided by this chasm. And if you want to read more about this, go to, go to Jesus in Luke when he talks about uh, the rich man and Lazarus. 
that there's this chasm. One side is paradise, the other side is Gehenna, that someday there will be a resurrection, and then we will go to permanent heaven, permanent hell. Um, and so what I'm getting at, and this would say, I'm speaking for Riverview, we, we don't believe there's such a thing called purgatory. I mean, maybe hearing me preach is like a purgatory of sorts, but we don't literally believe in a purgatory. You, you can also email me about that one. So we could say so much about this, but the point of this talk isn't like a theology of death, theology of heaven and hell, but I got to lean into it because the Bible is going here. And so know this, we pass, we die. The spirit continues and you've got the place of the dead, Sheol, Hades, and you can go to the, the good place or the bad place. The smoking section, the non-smoking section, uh, you can go up, you can go down. Good place is called things like paradise, Abraham's bosom, etc. When Paul in Philippians 1 talks about dying, he says, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if I die because if I die, I get to go be with Christ. So disembodied, I am with Christ. The bad place, there's a lot of names for this depending on the language. Things like Gehenna, a place of punishment, torment. This is away from the presence of God where you only have wrath, you only have punishment. And so this is what happens. We go to that spiritual state, and, and we're actually just passing through. Some people are like, well, we're just passing through this life. Well, we'll actually be passing through that state. Then Jesus returns, and two things happen. Number one, there's a resurrection. Everybody has a resurrection. Then, number two, there is a judgment. And basically, you then, at that judgment, go to the final resting place, up or down. Okay? And so, Christians, we believe that we live forever in a conscious awareness, in the presence of God, resurrected flesh and blood, new heaven, new earth. God loves stuff. We're going to resume the cultural mandate. I wonder if we spend the first part of eternity like cleaning up garbage and planting and doing those kinds of things. And then, um, then there is also the alternative. There is hell. All of this to say, and I'm so sorry this took a long time, but I'm also not sorry because it's important, is that I don't believe Jesus, when he went to the place of the dead, went to hell. I think two things were going on. He was being spiritually active, number one, proclaiming victory to the disobedient. And then uh, theologians will talk about how he was transferring the souls of the people that were at Abraham's side. And there's a lot of imagery we could use uh, to, to be with the father, going from paradise to be with the father. Okay. One last reason back into scripture now, back into John about why I believe Jesus didn't go to hell apart from the fact that the Bible never says it, is Jesus said it was finished. He said it was done. So the last scene of his natural life, when he is on the cross, he had been crucified, he addresses his mother and John. This is what it says. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When he said, it is finished, the word he used was tetelestai. This is an accounting term. He said, paid in full. It's done. This means the, the public shame, the ostracism, 
being a social pariah, the wrath of Roman execution finished it. That God was using Rome's mode of of, of execution as a tool to execute his wrath against sin and sinful people. Jesus was defeating sin and Satan. In a few days, he would defeat death. This was the blow that was crushing the head of the serpent that we hear about back in early Genesis. So what does this mean for us? It means because of the death of Jesus, God is not mad at us. The wrath was taken. It is finished. The account is paid. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are loved. We are adopted. We are justified. It means our souls are power-washed by Jesus, by what he did. In Romans 8, it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that we do. Nothing that is done to us. Nothing that we fail to do. It is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. So what do we do with this creed? With these three lines about death, dying, and suffering. Well, uh, we are believers. We're told to believe things. The work of God is this, John 6 says. Believe in the one that he sent. We, we need to believe. Uh, what we believe matters. We know this practically everyday life, right? What we believe in the here and now impacts how we live. The Bible would tell us what we believe about Jesus and these propositions impacts whether or not we live eternally. So at the end of the day, At the end of John's gospel, when he has documented that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he crucified, he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, that he descended to the dead. After that, John is going to say that he was quite literally raised as a historical reality. More on that next week. Come on back. Sorry to let the punchline out, but happy ending. Anyways... Listen to John's reasoning for why these things are shared. John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the one who takes away sin. When when John the Baptist saw him, he saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John wrote the scriptures. Church fathers put together the, church, or the creeds in the churches so that we might believe in the Messiah, so that we might have life in his name. So let's go back to the original question. I'll give you that visual. Holy God over here. Other, distant, separate from sinful people over there. How in the world does the gap get spanned? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He died. He was crucified. He was buried. For you and I. And he said, Tetelestai, that it is finished. It is accomplished. So all the shame that we carry, things that we have done, the things that have been done to us, our iniquities... Our harm went upon him so that he could be vindicating for us. By those wounds, we are healed. I urge you to believe that and to believe that not just for fire insurance, salvation in the future, and I don't mean to make light of that, but that your eternal life 
is on this side of heaven too. Eternal life is happening now. So when you feel accused, when you screw up, when you mess up, when you are discouraged, when life is terrible, you know that it is finished, that his wounds will heal you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for these people. I thank you so much that you love us, that you went to the cross for us, and that the cross couldn't hold you, that you used uh, an apparatus of human torture to vindicate us. Give us grace and mercy to believe these things, to draw confidence from these things, to give grace and mercy to others because of these things. We thank you that you love us, that that's the final word. In your name, amen.